Informing America's farmers and ranchers. It's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Adams on Agriculture. Thanks for joining us. Hope you're having a good day. It's going to be a busy day with USDA supply demand numbers to be coming out. We'll go over all those tomorrow here on Adams on Agriculture. But in the meantime, lots to talk about. More reaction to the big White House RFS meeting this week. We'll talk with Bob Deneen, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Uh, we talked about this yesterday. American Farmland Trust has a report out indicating a loss big loss of U.S. farmland. We're going to talk with them about that. We're going to talk with Sterling Liddell with Robo Research. Uh, some things to keep in mind, some uh, factors that could impact uh, grain markets uh, moving forward, and we'll get some of that outlook and analysis later on. But right now, we want to focus on the farm bill. Joining us is Philip Brasher from AgriPulse. Phil, uh, we got a, we have a new uh, wrinkle in all of this, and that is uh, Donald Trump's presence in the, the Farm Bill and a potential veto if he doesn't like what he sees, especially uh, on the nutrition title. What's the latest? Hey, yes, uh, great to be here, Mike. Um, yes, there's a meeting this afternoon at the White House uh, uh, with the President, uh, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue, and the, and the uh, Chairman of the two committees, House and uh, Senate Ag, Ag Committees, Mike Conaway and uh, and uh, Pat Roberts uh, from the Senate. Uh, yes, I you know I don't know that the president will actually use the word veto, but uh, I, what I've been told is that he's going to make very strong. Uh, uh, he wants he's going to make it clear that he wants to see stronger work requirements for for SNAP and the and the for food stamps in the final bill. Uh, which you know uh, could be essentially uh, essentially a veto threat without actually using that word, but uh, definitely puts a new wrinkle in the uh, the debate and the path forward uh, for a bill this year. Well, it might be something that uh, the House Republicans would go for, uh, but got to wonder about on the Senate side because Pat Roberts has indicated that he's not going down that same path. He is, and he's got to, he's got to get a. He's got to get 60 votes, which he, there's only 51 Republicans in the Senate. He's got to get 60 votes to get a bill out of there, either the, uh, a bill and, and then a final uh, conference report of uh, the agreement with the, uh, with the House. Um, so you've got to have Democratic support. Now, uh, we have been told uh, by more of the foot person that the real strategy here is to put these vulnerable, uh, some of the vulnerable Senate Democrats, uh, think Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, Joe Donnelly in Indiana, John Tester in Montana, uh, put them on a hot seat, put a lot of pressure on them uh, because uh, work requirements pull very well, and they uh, even even rural Democrats uh, say that it's a, it's a tough issue uh, for them, uh, rural Democrats in the House. So there's a lot of politics. This is this is looking to November very much. Uh, but what uh, what it does to the farm bill is uh, is another is another question. You're right. It's it's a it's a problem for Pat Roberts. We're talking with Philip Brasher with AgriPulse, uh, looking at the farm bill. So where, what are you hearing as far as Chairman Conaway's uh, um, efforts to get enough votes in the House, and when we might see that vote in the House? Well, still looking to next week. There's a deadline on Friday, uh, 10 a.m., for amendments to be filed. Uh, Democrats, uh, everything we hear is the Democrats are not going to file any amendments. They're only going to come from the Republican side. Uh, there's a few that have been filed so far, nothing particularly controversial. Uh, there's a lot of optimism. Everything I'm hearing is very optimistic from the Speaker's office all the way down about uh, getting the bill out of the House. Uh, the, the bigger question has been, can uh, can Conaway defeat amendments on sugar, crop insurance, and so forth? But I'm not hearing a huge amount of concern on that. And the uh, top Democrat over on, on, on House Ag, Colin Peterson, uh, is, is pretty optimistic about defeating those amendments as well. You tell me this week that the fact that Democrats are not offering any amendments really helps uh, protect uh, – protect farm programs and crop insurance because it takes Democrats out of the game. Where are the uh, efforts to change crop insurance, make amendments for crop insurance, where will those come from? 
Well, we have any. There are some Republicans. Uh, there is there is one bill that actually plucks uh, all of the crop insurance cuts out of President Trump's budget, packages them into a bill. That could be that possibly could be an amendment uh, to basically force uh, the House to vote on the president's budget on on crop insurance. That's a whole. That's the whole package. Uh, there could be, and again, we haven't seen the amendments. Uh, the amendments that are more likely to, the amendment that would most likely pass, uh, it would be the hardest uh, for Conaway defeat, most likely would be one that would uh, set an income limit on, uh, uh, or, would, or would reduce premium subsidies for uh, producers over a certain uh, income uh, threshold. Uh, in other words, set a means test for the top uh, premium subsidies. So it could still get interesting when it gets to the floor and those amendments start coming in. Uh, yes, it could, but like I say, there's a, there's a lot of optimism about getting this bill out of the House. Uh, the message from the White House isn't going to hurt in terms of uh, getting uh, conservatives on board on the final vote. And the message that's going from the Republican leadership to hardline fiscal conservatives in the House who would normally like to cut farm programs is that if they want all this, if they want all these reforms to food stamps, they've got to vote against these amendments and get this bill out of the House. That's the message. That's the message that's going to conservatives. Uh, We know you don't like some of those things in farm programs and crop insurance, but we know this uh, reforms, uh, welfare reform is more important to you, so vote with us. So the Republicans are basically trying to bring all their different factions together and make sure they have a strong party support to get this thing passed. Now, what are you, exactly. hearing, from, what are you hearing from Pat Roberts when their bill might come out on the Senate side? Oh, nothing, nothing. Uh, he's uh, still uh, told me this week he's still got to get together with uh, Debbie Stabenow, the ranking Democrat, to to work with uh, to work through uh, a, a number of issues. Uh, really, no, uh, I hate to say it, no real sign of it's uh, moving uh, that it's going to come out imminently. Well, that's going to be interesting to watch. Uh, I, I'm I'm already anticipating the conference committee. That one ought to be really interesting. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh yeah. If uh, if Chairman Conway has the support for the president for demanding uh, ter- ter- tough tougher work requirements on uh, SNAP or food stamps, uh, yeah, it could. And there are other a number of other issues, spending issues, uh, uh, very different priorities. Uh, uh, between the Senate and the House on uh, funding some programs and on conservation, number of things they have to work through. It would take a while. A lot, to, lot to do. A long ways to go yet on this farm bill for sure. Philip, thanks a lot. We'll stay in right. touch. Okay. Appreciate it. Thanks. Phil Brasher with AgriPulse does a great job covering the the farm bill, and uh, there's going to be a lot to cover as this thing uh, makes its way forward. And it looks like we're getting closer to that vote in the House and this move by President Trump meeting going on. Looks like uh, efforts to uh, bring the Republicans uh, in the House together and, and get it passed there. But still, as we said, uh, big differences on the, with the Senate. Well, a lot of differences after the White House meeting on the RFS this week. Um, the renewable fuels industry still has some concerns for sure when it comes to exports and rents. We'll get into all of that with Bob Deneen, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, next on AOA Adams on Agriculture. In 1847, Hanson Crockett Gregory invented the donut. Genius. In 1908, Melita Bence invented the paper coffee filter. Genius. In 1928, Otto Frederick Rowetter invented sliced bread. Genius. In 1930, Ruth Wakefield invented the chocolate chip cookie. Mmm, genius. There's genius, and then there's pure genius. At BASF, that's what drove us to develop Ingenia Herbicide, our most advanced dicamba formulation ever for dicamba-tolerant cotton and soybeans. It gives you a low-volatility solution at the lowest dicamba use rate ever offered, providing an additional site of action to outsmart the toughest weeds, even the glyphosate-resistant ones. Grow smart with Ingenia Herbicide from BASF, a flexible solution that's pure genius. Talk to your representative today. Learn more at IngeniaHerbicide.com. BASF, we create chemistry. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA-restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label directions. 
Hello, I'm Mike Lindell, the inventor of my pillow. And like all of you out there, I had problems sleeping. Pillows would go flat. I would flip-flop all night long. I'd wake up with a sore neck or maybe a headache, or I'd feel like I needed a nap even though I slept eight hours. Well, when I invented my pillow, I wanted it so you could adjust the patented fill to give you the exact support you need as an individual, regardless of sleep position. My pillow will get you into that deep REM sleep faster, and you will stay there longer. It's not how much time we spend in bed. It's how much of that quality sleep we get. I do all my own manufacturing in my home state of Minnesota with a 10-year warranty and you can wash and dry my pillow and here's my best offer ever get four my pillows for the price of one that's right get four my pillows two premium pillows and two travel pillows for the price of one order my pillow at 800-871-7280 and use promo code farm 11 get four my pillows for the price of one call 800-871-7280 and use promo code farm 11 go to mypillow.com and at checkout use promo code farm 11 all right, guys, we're ready for our four-season sunroom, and Daddy's going to get a rec room with refreshments. Oh, no, we'll be sleeping under the stars. Mom, what about the one with, you know, the fun? Nice try, little bro. It's a gym, my gym. Hey, Grandma's getting her four-seasons garden room, weather tight and still like being outdoors. Maybe a living room. Oh, no, wait, a family hub. Yeah. yeah. No matter what the budget, the season, or the climate, Four Seasons Sunrooms let you and your family enjoy the outdoors inside. Call now to hear more about these great offers from the premier manufacturer of sunrooms since 1975. More reasons for Four Seasons now. To find out more, call toll-free 800-988-4477. That's 800-988-4477. Call 800-988-4477 today. information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. And we welcome back the president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, Bob Deneen. Well, Bob, do you feel better or worse after the meeting this week at the White House on the RFS? Well, I feel marginally better. I think we are moving in the right direction. I mean, here's the thing. Uh, we had two champions in the room with the president that uh, are just uh, tour de force. Senators Ernst and Grassley making the case for RVP allowing E15 to be sold year-round uh, and uh, an end to the kind of demand destruction that EPA has been engaged in over the last several months. Now, look, alone, each of them is kind of an immovable object, making sure that they're going to defend ethanol uh, against all takers. But together, they're almost an unstoppable force. <laughs> and, and I believe that uh, Donald Trump ran into that unstoppable force on Tuesday. Because what came out of the meeting was an agreement that uh, E15 ought to be allowed year-round, that there ought not be unnecessarily regulatory barriers to uh, a higher-octane, lower-priced fuel. And that's just uh, long overdue, but a terrific conclusion. Uh, there was also finally a decision to put to rest this notion of capping the price of rents uh, and being able to put a stake in that foolish notion is also really good. There was a great deal of discussion about uh, these small refinery hardship waivers that have been given out like candy to any company that has Scott Pruitt's address and a stamp and uh, a, a real intention to try to uh, – replace those gallons and uh, reallocate uh, more than a billion gallons of lost demand. That's terrific. But there was also this discussion about, you know, trying to help the small refineries, these poor, struggling small refineries. And they're going to allow uh, exported gallons of ethanol to count toward a refiner's domestic fuel obligation. Well, that just completely... Uh, undermines a lot of the good that they would be doing. There's no clarity as yet as to how that would happen, and I believe they would run into legal issues. I think that there are practical issues with that, and it certainly creates a trade situation uh, where other countries would, would look at that and say, wait a minute, why would you subsidize the lowest-cost ethanol in the world for export? You don't need a subsidy for exported ethanol today. And, and they would have retaliatory trade actions as a consequence. So what you'd have is 
the absurd situation where highly profitable refineries would be benefiting from the low cost of RINs because you've artificially increased the supply, uh, and the ones paying for it would be farmers would have to pay for it in the, in the way of retaliatory trade practices. I don't think uh, what they really intend to do is to have farmers subsidizing very profitable refineries. And so I think before all is said and done, uh, that will be uh, taken off the table. But we'll see. So it was a mixed bag coming out of that meeting. We're talking with Bob Deneen, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Back to the art of uh, the E15 waiver. Any indication, Bob, of how quickly this could happen? Could it happen for this summer, or are they going to drag their feet on this? Well, they've been dragging their feet for five years on that issue. Uh, look, it is possible that they could expedite rulemaking and get it done, but the beginning of the VOC control season, uh, not to get too into the weeds, but when that would be applicable, uh, is in two weeks. I just don't see them getting it done in the next two weeks. So realistically, you're looking at next summer before that would become uh, operable. And that's really one of the things that's driving us crazy, because small refineries uh, like Exxon, apparently, uh, or Carl Icahn's uh, CVR refinery, are getting waivers from the program today. And, you know, the little benefit that we might see from this whole thing uh, won't happen until next year. There are some real fairness questions that are raised by all of this. And any indication out of this meeting that the president has said to Scott Pruitt, hey, we, we have to change how we're doing these uh, waivers, or is he just still leaving it up to him and saying do what you think's best? No, I think that there was uh, a lot of discussion about the absurdity of uh, giving small refineries waivers from this program without having to demonstrate any hardship whatsoever. I think that there was uh, great consensus that EPA needs to tighten how it uh, scrutinizes those requests. They have to create some kind of a standard by which a small refinery would have to show that the RFS is causing them hardship, and they're not going to be able to do that. So I think going forward, you're just not going to see this wholesale uh, you know, uh, relief given to small refineries. But without transparency, would we know if they're still doing it or not? No, there's going to have to be some transparency. You're absolutely right. Uh, frankly, the only reason we know about many of the uh, waivers that have been granted so far is through the company's own SEC filings. EPA's not telling anybody. Uh, the RFA sent a Freedom of Information Act request uh, a month ago asking for that kind of information, not confidential business information, but, you know, tell us who the companies are. Tell us when they were granted these waivers. Tell us, you know, how many have gotten it, how many gallons are impacted. None of that is is confidential business information. But EPA so far has been hiding behind that uh, uh, to not tell anybody exactly what's going on. So it's it's extraordinarily frustrating. And as far as reallocating those gallons that have been lost, can you put the toothpaste back in the tube? Well, not, uh, not right away. Uh, you'll just use more toothpaste next year and the year after that and the year after that. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate that it had to come to this, but... Uh, We'll, we'll get there. So we come out of this meeting, and the headlines are, you know, the White House says they think they're done with this issue. I mean, obviously it's far from done. Where do we go from here? Well, as Senator Grassley said, leaving the meeting, the devil's in the details. And it's up to uh, Secretary Purdue uh, at Agriculture and EPA Administrator Pruitt to work out the details as to how they would reallocate the gallons from uh, these small refinery waiver exemptions, how they would implement a RIN for export uh, deal. And uh, it's a mystery to me how they will make that happen. So some of that may not happen, uh, and that's fine, because some of it absolutely should not happen. There's no way that they should allow exported ethanol to count toward a domestic fuel requirement. Yeah, it. I just get the feeling that came out of that meeting, the president wanted to to feel good about it and that both sides won. So you got Ted Cruz thinking he's won with the export uh, credits and uh, 
he feels that he's appeased the renewable fuels industry by saying, yeah, we're going to go with the E15 waiver, even though it might not be for till next year, as you pointed out. It seems like there was a, uh, the goal of getting a, a good vibe coming out of that, but the details, as you said, have yet to be worked out to uh, really substantiate any of that good feeling. Well, there's no question that the president had in his mind that there needs to be a quo for the quid, right? That's what a good deal maker does. The problem here is that the refining industry had already gotten their quid. They had already gotten more than a billion gallons of demand destruction through these small refinery exemptions. So there's just no need to give them anything more, certainly not something as expansive and as destructive as uh, RINs for exports. All right. And one other topic before I let you go, before we're out of time. You testified this week on electric vehicles. Where does ethanol come into this as we look towards the future? Well, look, ethanol can, in fact, play a role in future electric technologies because there are already cars that are being developed that uh, fuel cell vehicles that would use ethanol as the fuel uh, to generate the, the electricity from the fuel cell. There are also technologies for uh, hybrid electrics that would incorporate FFV technology for the, when those vehicles are running on hydrocarbons. So there's opportunity there. It's not all uh, negative. And, in fact, I think that uh, the electric vehicle is a long way from uh, uh, really displacing a significant number of internal combustion engines anyway. And my point has been there's a lot that we can do to make the internal combustion engines and today's fuels cleaner and more efficient. And that involves the use of higher octane fuels, higher ethanol blends. So there's, there's opportunity in the long run, but there's huge opportunity in the midterm. Yeah, I remember talking about this many years ago, that if we ever went to battery, more battery-powered cars, that ethanol could play a big part in, in, in that. So it's not, not like this is new. The industry's seen this for some time. Absolutely. All right, Bob, thanks a lot. Always a lot going on. And <laughs> we came out of that meeting hoping for finality, but I think we're a long ways from that. But uh, we're still asking the questions. Hopefully we'll get those answers soon. Thanks, as always. Appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. Bye. Take care. Bob Deneen, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Yeah, the president may feel that uh, he's come out of this with everybody feeling good, but I, I think we're, in reality, we're a long way from that because a lot of details need to be worked out and a lot of things are still being put off and we're still lacking transparency on a lot of these issues when it comes to uh, renewable fuels and the RFS. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk markets and what are some of the factors we need to be watching moving ahead. We're going to talk with Sterling Liddell with Robo Research next on AOA Adams on Agriculture. Around 3500 B.C., someone used basic tools and slabs of wood to invent the wheel. Genius. In 1879, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. Genius. In 1899, a Norwegian with degrees in electronics, science, and mathematics invented the paperclip. Genius. There's genius, and then there's pure genius. At BASF, that's what drove us to develop Ingenia Herbicide, our most advanced dicamba formulation ever for dicamba-tolerant cotton and soybeans. It gives you a low-volatility solution at the lowest dicamba use rate ever offered, providing an additional site of action to outsmart the toughest weeds, even the glyphosate-resistant ones. Grow smart with Ingenia Herbicide from BASF, a flexible solution that's pure genius. Talk to your representative today. Learn more at IngeniaHerbicide.com. BASF, we create chemistry. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA-restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label directions. Time for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. Weekly export sales reported by USDA mostly fell short of expectations on Thursday. Sales of wheat for the week ending May 3rd of 83,400 metric tons, well below the range of pre-report estimates. Corn sales of 785,600 tons, also low relative to expectations. Soybean sales of 632,600 tons, within the range of trade guesses. 
In soybean futures, we are trending three to four cents higher an hour into the trading day. July soybeans edged to a slightly weaker close on Wednesday in a choppy, consolidative trade. On the upside, the April 24th low at 10.27 and three quarters is resistance. Initial support lies at 10.10 and three quarters. July corn sliding lower Wednesday in choppy, corrective trade. In corn early on this Thursday, we're a fraction to a penny lower. July recently marking out resistance and a short-term top last week at 4.08 and a quarter. USDA again coming out with new report numbers on this Thursday. The numbers expected to be the catalyst for another round of buying in corn. Domestic old crop ending stocks expected to come in at 1.631 billion bushels if realized the lowest stocks dating back to the 2014-15 marketing year. Livestock at the Merck and live cattle futures on a Thursday. We are trending in dime to 62 cents lower, 77 to a dollar 20 lower in feeder cattle. Clean hog futures a narrow mix, 15 cents on either side of steady money. On Wall Street, the Dow up 78 points, NASDAQ up 27, crude oil down 50 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. I'm here to tell you that your options for getting out of debt have never been better. How do I know? Because I'm Howard Dvorkin, the founder of Consolidated Credit. For nearly two decades, we've helped over 5 million people just like you. And every time we help someone, they all say the same thing. Why didn't I call sooner? If you owe too much money on your credit cards and you feel that you'll never be able to pay it off, don't wait. Simply pick up the phone and find out what our Freedom Quest program can do for you. Reducing your payments by up to 50% is just the beginning, but you have to take the first step. When credit card debt is the problem, we're the solution. Call Consolidated Credit now. As soon as you call, the hard part is over. Call Consolidated Credit now. 1-800-489-7204. 1-800-489-7204. That's 1-800-489-7204. 5701 Sunrise Boulevard, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Licensed debt management service provider. Vermont and New York Banking Departments. Maryland 49, Oregon DM80031. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. Welcome back. Just some more thoughts on this RFS meeting. I mean, the White House may want to spin this as a win-win, but it's hard to see, at least right now, where are the the big wins for the renewable fuels industry because the E15 waiver is the biggie, and as you heard Bob Deneen say, that probably won't happen this year. It'll be next year, probably at the earliest. Meanwhile, the waivers for the refineries – for the RFS, they've been getting those, and they may keep getting them, and we won't know because of the lack of transparency. And if this export credit thing goes through, that could, as Bob laid out, there could be all kinds of problems, trade retaliation and harm to the domestic industry, things like that. So, I mean, it's hard to see, again, where the renewable fuels industry came out uh, big winners in this. It just, it doesn't. I don't, no matter how the White House wants to spin it, it doesn't seem like that's the case. Now, a lot of details yet to be worked out, but uh, right now, based on what we know, uh, it doesn't seem to be a big win at this point for the for the renewable fuels industry. But we'll see. All right, let's uh, let's look at the markets and uh, some of the things we need to be aware of and watching. Uh, planting well underway now, and in some places, uh, pretty well wrapped up. And we look ahead to uh, what could be a, a volatile year. Joining us now is Sterling Liddell, Vice President and Senior Global Analytics Specialist for Rabo Research. Sterling, good to talk with you again. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Mike, my pleasure. I know that uh, you're wanting people, wanting farmers uh, to not fall asleep. There, there are a lot of things, a lot of factors that they, they need to be aware of that's going to impact markets uh, moving forward this year. Well, there's a, there's a lot of uh, difference this year than we've faced the last three years, especially when we boil it down in corn prices. But there's, there's a lot in both wheat and soybeans as well that most farmers need to be aware of. And one of the key things uh, over the last three, four years, we've been projecting that acreage was going to dip, especially in corn. And this year, uh, the, the prospective planting report gave us some evidence that that's actually happened and brought us back down to where we believe we're below an equilibrium. In other words, if we produce at trend line yields, we would be 
uh, depleting stocks as opposed to building them. All right. So I've heard a number of analysts lately tell me they are they are bullish uh, on uh, corn prices moving forward. A lot of factors coming together that would seemingly support corn prices. How bullish are you? Well, right now the the predominant view would be bullish, um, but there's there's potential. And what we're looking at right now, this time of year, we have a lot of evidence starting to accumulate, but nothing really solid yet. So what we do is try to create a balance of where we believe things are and what the probability of those things happening would be. And and what we're seeing is that at 88 million acres, we actually have almost a 60% probability of dropping below a key uh, metric, which is a 12% stocks-to-use ratio that would consistently push prices above $4 for corn. And that's, that's really important to remember because if we have any problem with yield, that can be uh, that can really exacerbate where prices go, and, and you can see much higher prices. So that combined with the fact that there's a lot of what we would call new money in the market uh, with soaring open interests in corn and, and come off a little bit but still very strong net long positions for non-commercial funds, uh, there's the capability of really driving prices higher. At the same time, if this crop starts to look good and we see that yield is progressing, those, that same money can pull out quickly and drive prices down. Yeah, I guess worst-case scenario from a market standpoint, uh, would if you're looking at a bumper crop and you have trade problems, NAFTA, China, whatever it might be, uh, you know, there are all kinds of landmines out there in trade. But if, if you had that scenario, big crop and bad trade news, then you got a lot of negative pressure on the market. And big crop, the, the main thing right now would be bigger acreage. Um, we came in at 88 million acres on corn, prospective planting. Uh, if we suddenly switched that for some reason, which generally we don't, usually 70% of the time, we're within a million acres of that uh, USDA survey. But if, if we did, if we went much higher, 89 million or better, uh, then we'd be above equilibrium, and that would be very negative for prices. So right now it's, it's that acreage number, uh, but as we go into emergence and then pollination, we'll be watching where yield could be very closely. We're talking with Sterling Liddell, Vice President and Senior Global Analytics Specialist for Robo Research. So it sounds like there could be some real volatility in the market this year. Volatility really is the name of the game, and and this is beneficial for um, everybody that's looking for opportunities. It's just a matter of understanding where your break-even costs are and and how to quickly take advantage of those opportunities. That's that's one of the keys. not waiting for prices to continually go up, but, but pulling the trigger on at least some of the crop at, at the right times. That's key this year. Um, because, as I said, you could see prices drop if the crop looks good uh, going into the first week of July. I keep hearing market analysts say volatility brings opportunity. Now, volatility can bring a lot of nervousness, but there, are, there will be opportunities uh, in that volatility. Now, if you know how to take advantage of it, the volatility really does create a lot of opportunity. Um, time to start really contacting local buyers and getting a feel for where they're basing right now their, their price and what their basis is. One of the biggest concerns that we have is, is the soybean market. Um, this past year, uh, dis- even before the, the whole discussion about trade and trade issues, uh, China put a lot of pressure on the Brazilian market and imported unseasonably amount, uh, unseasonable amount of soybeans out of Brazil. And we estimate that this is probably costing them about 20 to $40 a ton, um, over 10% already, uh, with just what they've done in imports. Um, that is, it's also pushed storage back up into the United States. So switched it from South America to the U.S. of soybeans. And, and soybeans, of course, don't store as well as grain. Uh, but at the same time, um, it, they may be forced into that position with any kind of permanent action from China. And that would be very negative for basis. 
So, so we got a little. Go, go ahead. Yeah, we got a boost from Argentina buying U.S. soybeans, but that's not something we can count on a lot, you know, on a steady basis, is it? And is that just kind of a, a, a unique opportunity that came up this year? Well, Argentina, Argentina is the world's uh, soybean meal provider. They tax their uh, soybeans at a 30% export rate so that, and then the meal at a lower rate so that they're forced to sell the value-added product of meal. And, and as you get higher uh, costs of soybeans in South America, then more interest in soybean meal, and especially with our, the Argentine drought going on, uh, they're, they're buying soybeans outside. They buy a lot of soybeans from Uruguay and Paraguay already, but to supplement that, they had to come to the U.S., now, if China were to implement a tariff, that could become more of a permanent fixture as Argentina and Europe and some other buyers start looking to the U.S. as a, as a source for soybeans as opposed to the higher-priced Brazilian soybeans, which is what they would become under that pressure. So I've been kind of wondering, as we've seen this ratcheting up of soybean acres here, how long can that can, can, can continue to sustain itself before we see a real uh, – you know, downward pressure and prices. We should start to see a rebalancing between the relationship of corn and soybeans uh, within this year or next year. Uh, a tariff by China would rebalance that in the U.S. automatically. Um, the If there was a disruption in one of the main um, animal feeding categories like uh, swine or poultry, that could also help to to rebalance that relationship. Um, right now, we probably have a million to a million and a half too many acres of soybeans in the U.S. Uh, that could change based on the, the tariffs. Uh, but, but we should see a rebalancing where corn steps back into that driver's seat in the U.S. in the next year or so. Any bright spot on the horizon for wheat? Wheat... Um, is a very interesting crop because it has an internal price, but then it's competing on this global basis. Uh, this year, wheat could actually become quite explosive, especially the the red wheats. Uh, with the poor uh, crop that's been developed across the U.S. this year, um, combined with the dryness in Canada, it could pressure those prices internally up uh, Pretty substantially, we we estimate if we were somewhere in the four to five bushels off trend, uh, that that could add two dollars to the price of wheat per bushel. So that's a, a pretty substantial increase that, that we could potentially see because of the very low number of acres that we've planted to hard red winter wheat this year. Um, that over time. Uh, just from our, our modeling, we see that that needs to change, and we actually need to start ramping wheat acres back up because of the risk of having a low crop and how much that would affect prices in the U.S. All right, Sterling, thanks. Looks like we better buckle the seatbelts. Uh, it could be an interesting year ahead on the markets, right? Going to be an interesting year, but if if farmers, producers are ready for it, it should should be a much better year than the last three or so. Be ready to take advantage of those opportunities. All right. Sterling, thank you. Appreciate your outlook. Thanks, Mike. Sterling Liddell, Vice President and Senior Global Analytics Specialist for Rabo Research, talking about the uh, the volatility, especially with corn, that could create some uh, marketing opportunities this year. Coming up next, loss of farmland in the U.S. How much? How serious is it? We'll talk about that next Stay with us. This is AOA Adams on Agriculture. We paid less for our Craftmatic today than we did 20 years ago. 
If you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep, call now for prices and free information on today's Craftmatic Adjustable Beds. And then decide when you see how little they cost. Rated number one by consumers nationwide on ConsumerAffairs.com. Craftmatic beds come in all mattress types, including cool gel memory foam for up to 50% less than today's leading memory foam brand. Enjoy temporary relief of low back pain, poor circulation, nighttime heartburn, mild arthritis. You'll sleep better in a Craftmatic Adjustable bed so if you're still searching for the perfect solution to a good night's sleep call now for prices and information and then decide when you see how little they cost discover craftmatic for less up to 50 percent less than today's leading memory foam brand call 1-800-318-7903 that's 1-800-318-7903 1-800-318-7903 call now if you or your family love the freedom of swimming any time of year, if you love sharing good times and making great memories, or if you want one of the best total body workouts ever, then it's time to discover the three C's of your very own endless pool. The first C is convenience. Imagine swimming year-round in your own private swimming pool, installed indoors or out, just steps away. The second C is comfort. With sculpted spa seats and your own adjustable temperature, you can easily escape the stress of your day. And the third C is cost. Your endless pool is an affordable luxury at a fraction of the cost of a regular pool. And here's a bonus C, choice. Because when you call for your free endless pool idea kit, you'll receive information on our full line of pools to suit your budget and location. Call now for your free information, 800-717-0734, 800-717-0734. All right, guys, we're ready for our four-season sunroom, and Daddy's going to get a rec room with refreshments. Oh, no, we'll be sleeping under the stars. Mom, what about the one with, you know, the fun? Nice try, little bro. It's a gym. My gym. Hey, Grandma's getting her Four Seasons garden room. Weather tight and still like being outdoors. Maybe a living room. Oh, no, wait. A family hub. Yeah. No matter what the budget, the season, or the climate, Four Seasons Sunrooms let you and your family enjoy the outdoors inside. Call now to hear more about these great offers from the premier manufacturer of sunrooms since 1975. To find out more, call toll-free 800-988-4477. That's 800-988-4477. Call 800-988-4477 today. In 1847, Hanson Crockett Gregory invented the donut. Genius. In 1908, Melita Benz invented the paper coffee filter. Genius. In 1928, Otto Frederick Rowetter invented sliced bread. Genius. In 1930, Ruth Wakefield invented the chocolate chip cookie. Mmm, genius. There's genius, and then there's pure genius. At BASF, that's what drove us to develop Ingenia Herbicide, our most advanced dicamba formulation ever for dicamba-tolerant cotton and soybeans. It gives you a low-volatility solution at the lowest dicamba use rate ever offered, providing an additional site of action to outsmart the toughest weeds, even the glyphosate-resistant ones. Grow smart with Ingenia Herbicide from BASF, a flexible solution that's pure genius. Talk to your representative today. Learn more at IngeniaHerbicide.com. BASF, we create chemistry. Ingenia Herbicide is a U.S. EPA-restricted-use pesticide. Always read and follow label directions. Reason number 12 why you should own a Thermospas hot tub? They require no attachment to your home's plumbing. Thanks to the Thermospas unique built-in thermofiltration system that filters the water an incredible 144 times a day, you simply fill it with a garden hose and your water stays crystal clear with very little maintenance. Call to receive a free DVD and brochure and find out how you can own a Thermospas hot tub for only a few dollars a day. Right now, they're offering 0% APR financing with approved credit and a $1,000 savings coupon, including free delivery, free chemicals, and a cash discount. And with bottles starting at $4,995, there will never be a better time to own a Thermospas hot tub. So call now and ask about this limited time offer. Call Thermospas today at 800-991-5852 for your free DVD and brochure. That's 800-991-5852. Thermospas, hot tubs designed to improve your life. Call 800-991-5852 today to take advantage of 0% APR financing. 
information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. The American Farmland Trust has released a report on the loss of U.S. farm and ranch land. It's called Farms Under Threat, the State of America's Farmland, and it uh, sounds a, a very serious warning that the loss of farmland is indeed serious and will accelerate unless action is taken. Here to talk about the, the findings in the report is John Larson, Senior Vice President for American Farmland Trust. John, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Mike. How significant is this uh, farm and ranch land loss, according to your report? So the report really was kind of eye-opening. And, and just to give you a little background on, on how we did the report, it, it, it's a spatial analysis that, uh, in, in partnership with the United States Department of Agriculture, we've utilized the national resource inventory data to harmonize other national data sets so that we had consistency and assurances that the information we were getting back was accurate. And what it shows us is that we have woefully underestimated the amount of loss that is experienced between the census dates of 1992 and 2012. And in that 20 years, we lost 31 million acres of farmland. And so when you think about that, um, that number is actually, based upon our analysis, nearly a doubling of what we thought we had lost. Okay. 31 million acres of farmland lost. How much of that would we consider prime farmland? So if you look at the, the way the loss is occurring is, unfortunately, we're, we're, uh, the, the prime lands are occurring at a faster loss than other lands. And so, you know, if you think about it in the context of where a de- development occurs, many times those acres that are on the, on the outskirts of our metropolitan areas are some of our most productive lands. And one of the things that we've done in this report, Mike, is we've actually gone beyond the prime soil designation and brought in other factors to help us to identify what is most productive, what is most versatile, and what is our most resilient lands. Had had an advisory group of of over 30 individuals from around the country and, and from specific expertise to help us to create these uh, uh, algorithms to help to define what do we mean when we talk about productivity, resiliency, and versatility. And so, unfortunately, what we see is a higher rate of conversion based upon uh, development pressure um, on those higher and more productive land. So as many as 11 million acres of those lost were some of the, what we would consider the best farmland in the country. So is this going mostly to... Um, uh, urban expansion uh, development is that where it's going yeah when we look at the numbers you know there's a lot occurring in what we would consider to be that that urban space um, you know I think that uh, and, and I don't want to I don't want to dive too far into the weeds but when we talk about it in the context of you know urban development what we see is like 59 percent of the the developed acres were directly influenced by urban expansion um, and that then, it really, uh, it, it helps us to justify the, the, the actual spatial analysis that we have with this report in that we have the ability then to target and, and to see where those most productive acres are and to help to put in place with our future phases of this report. Right now, this report is from a very national perspective. That is the first phase. As we get into the, the next phases of the analysis, we will be able to drill down to the state level, which in that phase will also do what we're going to call a state report card and a scorecard. And that will help us to see how our policies influencing states in relationship to how they're protecting this, this irreplaceable resource of productive farmland. You know, it's one of those situations where we have worked at the American Farmland Trust really hard to create farmland protection programs across the entire country, and we still have over 20 states that don't have an official protection program. 
as we've seen this trend over the years, especially as farmers age, uh, there's more profit when someone comes in and offers them a good price for their land. Uh, they sell out, and that that uh, that land goes into construction and development, and and you don't you don't see it come back to farmland. I mean, are we looking at the very real possibility in the future of having uh, too few farms, too uh, too little acreage, uh, uh, even with our growing production on fewer acres? I think that that's, that's the urgency that we are addressing with this report right now. When you think about it in the context of where do we grow the food, feed, fiber, and fuel that we need as a country, but then also in the bigger global context, you know, everybody wants to talk about the nine point whatever billion people that are going to be on the planet in 2050, and how are we going to feed them? We we look at it from the perspective of there is there is both that aspect, but there's also then the the necessity for us to think about it in the context of where do we grow the food that our communities need right now today and then looking at it in the long term as to where will we continue to produce that you know i think back to the 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 late 70s and the and the and the trucking strike that created a real anxiety for folks in new england when the trucks couldn't deliver the food from california and other places and we need to think about it in the in the national context but then we also need to think about it in the local, the community context of where is the food being grown and, and, and are we going to have food security in our country? And then, as, as you know, to, to take a real long way around to answer your question, in, in the global economy also. Well, these are eye-opening numbers. Real quick, John, where can people see your report and look at this? So our report is online at farmland.org backslash farms under threat okay we encourage people to check that out and read them and and read this uh, report look at these numbers Uh, i think that when you look at the how big some of those numbers are they really jump out at you john thanks for being with us and uh, sharing some of this and as you work on this more and develop with these state report cards we'll talk with you more in the future okay appreciate it mike thank you very much thank you john larson senior vice president with American Farmland Trust. All right, that's going to wrap it up for today. Big report day from USDA. We'll go over those numbers tomorrow and get uh, some reaction and analysis and much, much more. So hope you'll join us right here on AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Have a great day, everyone. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network. We're excited to explore the topics that make a difference to agriculture. The Farm Bill, immigration reform, reducing regulations, trade, new technology, as well as infrastructure and health care. Through the year, Adams on Agriculture will originate on location from several major national meetings and events. Subscribe to the show's podcast at AmericanAgNetwork.com. We're proud of our new affiliates. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture from the American Ag Network.